You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Eleanor Brown. Eleanor is the New York Times bestselling author of The Weird Sisters and The Light of Paris and the editor of the anthology at Paris All Your Own. She holds an MA in literature and teaches writing workshops at writing conferences and centers nationwide. Her latest book is entitled Any Other Family and is available wherever books are sold. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Eleanor. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Oh, I'm excited to have you here. Uh, Eleanor, I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everybody to begin, which is, uh, Eleanor, where does your story as an author begin? My story as an author um, begins, you know, I, I was listening to, to some of the shows and feeling like my story is the same as everybody else's. Um, I was a reader. Uh, I had a teacher in sixth grade who really encouraged my writing. And it was kind of the first time that I had ever thought like, oh, this is actually something I could do, right? Like these stories that I love to read, I could actually be part of creating them. Um, and that set me off. And I just kept writing and kept writing and kept writing and kept failing and kept failing and failing and getting, you know, failing better every time. Um, and then uh, I started trying to write novels in my 20s. Um, I read about, I think, four or five really terrible novels um, that really, I, I don't publish them for your protection. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't want to subject anybody to that. It's like learning the violin, like you have to learn it. And yet it's so painful for everyone around you while you're doing it. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I finally found one that I, I thought was worth uh, inflicting on the world. And, um, and I've done a few since then. And here we are. How old are you when that one hit? Uh, oh, my gosh. So uh, I love to tell this story to writers. Um, so I think I started writing it when I was around 30. Mm -hmm. um, I was teaching full time at the time. So I was like a binge writer, like I'd write and then I'd you know, on vacations or whatever. And then I wouldn't write for ages. So it took me a long time to write it. And then it took me a long time to find an agent. I queried 99 agents. Um, and then it took a long time to find a publisher. I think it was out for about two years. And then I spent another year editing it. And then, as you know, traditional publishing is very slow. So it was another year before publication. So I think um, from the time I sat down to start writing it to the time it hit bookstore shelves was about seven years. Wow. So I always tell people, if you're looking for a speedy path to fame and fortune, um, I consider reality television because <laughs> writing is not it. <laughs> well, and then the fortune part could be suspect too, right? I mean, even, even if you hit. Um, it's true. You know. It's it's absolutely true. You have to do it because you love it. This is what yeah. I always tell people. I, you have to do it because you love it, because that's the only thing that's going to keep you going when all the other stuff gets hard. Yeah, 99 
99 queries um yep. 99 there's queries like a, on the wall. there's like a song in there right 99 queries but uh agent eight one i don't know i, I yeah. <laughs> it's a terrible attempt at humor um is that a tattoo i saw on your on your wrist or on your hand i do have a tattoo there yeah what's what's the story is there a story to that there is a story to that. So um, I'm a little, I'm wound a little tight. <laughs> and um, so this is the Sanskrit word for flow. And it's a reminder to me to kind of let go and let things happen um, that I do not have to force everything to happen. Yeah, you got do you have any wrist tattoos you want to disclose now? No, I have. I'm, I'm, I'm boring. I'm vanilla. <laughs> I have a watch on. That's about it. Um, I thought about getting a tattoo when I was in college, but I never, I never pulled the trigger. I, I did drive two drunk people to get tattoos. Um, and I know oh, they aiding say and abetting. I was aiding and abetting. We were on spring break in Panama city beach, Florida. Um, oh my gosh. The tattoo parlor did not necessarily abide by the no drunk customers policy, uh, clearly, but yeah. then again, who, who comes in at, you know, 11 PM on spring break, <laughs> you know, to get a tattoo. Totally it's, sober. It's and not what people. Were there? Yeah. What were their art choices? It was our uh, fraternity letters, um, you know, our, our Greek letters for the uh, for the fraternity. And I looked at them and I said, you know, this this may not mean as much to you <laughs> <laughs> when you're 30 yeah. or 40. Now we're in our you know almost 50s. But, right. um, you know, permanent reminder of a temporary feeling is what I call that one. Right. But, right. Uh, well, that's I mean, that prop that probably is this, too. But. It's a fair reminder, you know, mm -hmm. to, to every time I have my hands on the keyboard, I can see it. So you could see it. Now, was that your first piece of, of body art or? No, that was my second. Okay. Um, I have one. Oh, there you go. All right. Here. This one actually was supposed to be like a little bit further over so that like you wouldn't be able to see it all the time, but whatever. Whatever. And, yeah. Yeah, it's it, there. it is what it is. I can't relocate it now. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there it is. Um, you know, do you think, you know, when you were in your twenties, um, yeah. you, you mentioning that you wrote a few things that you, uh, did not publish for art protection, but, um, what, what was it about kind of being in your twenties that, that, that what made you kind of not ready for, for kind of writing the, the great novel at, at that point in time, did you need more, more life experience? What, what was going on? Um, I think that was part of it. I think that, um, you know, I had to, like my 20s, like a lot of people's 20s was just about doing really dumb stuff. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, discovering that I was the architect of my own misery, you know, I was like, why am I so unhappy? Why is my life so terrible? Oh, because of you, you're the one who did it. <laughs> so I, I think that, um, you know, but that's, that's how you learn right? You got, you do the dumb stuff and then you figure things out about yourself and the world because of it. And so I think, I think that had to happen just kind of getting some life experience. I also think that I just had to work on my craft, right? You know, we, if you're going to decide you're going to be a blacksmith, you don't sit down and make a horseshoe on the first day and then force some poor horse to wear it around, right? You, appre you apprentice, you learn your craft. And I think that's, that's part of what I was doing to too, was I was learning my craft. Um, and I think that I was learning, I was learning a lot about publishing at the time, which was helpful. And yet, let me also say, so, you know, Stephen King's on writing, he talks about writing with the door closed versus writing with the door open. And I think for a lot of the time I was writing with the door open, right? Like I wanted to be published. And so I was thinking about the market and I was thinking about, you know, what other people would want. And for some, for some, in some ways that's helpful, but I think for me, it wasn't until I wrote with the door closed that I really wrote a, a story that was just for me, that I really wrote something that, that was good. And ultimately mm -hmm. did I open the door? Yeah. You know, when, when you're doing revision, when you're, if you decide that you want to publish in some form, you do need to open the door and think of, and think about other people besides yourself. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think I just needed time to figure that, figure all those things out. Yeah. I'm curious, like as being a student of the craft, I mean, in addition to, to reading on writing, um, what, what else were you doing to, to study the craft? Um, reading a ton, reading and rereading. And I think, you know, I'm not a literary snob. I think that you read what you want to read and you can choose at what level you read that, 
right? So um, I wrote my, my master's thesis on romance novels. Um, you know, so I spent a lot of time really deeply reading those and thinking about the genre and thinking about and thinking about tropes. Um, I do not recommend, I used to be a huge romance reader and then I did that project. And so it's a sure way to kill something you love is to turn it into an academic study. <laughs> so I can't, I can't read those anymore. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, and I am kind of a limitless reader. I will try basically anything. And I think that's also really helpful even if you know you have your genre that you want to write, I really want to write speculative fiction, then but you should also read romance novels and you should also read some literary fiction and read some nonfiction because you can learn things about story and about writing from whatever from whatever you do. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to read a, a variety of things because I get tired of of certain genres. I, I went through like a big medical thriller phase. Um, and then I'm like, eh, I think I need something else. Then I would you else, know, yeah. jump to like nonfiction, read a biography or something, and then go. You know, go back to like a, a regular kind of mystery thriller or like a comedy or or something like that because yeah, it's like good. a palate cleanser and I don't know if this happens to you but I will get especially if I've been reading one genre um, or a lot of similar books or a lot of similar authors I will hit a point where kind of nothing's landing with me and I just like read 10 pages of something I'm like I don't want this 20 pages of something I don't want this and that's when I feel like I really need to make a dramatic shift and jump from I don't know YA to medical thrillers or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever it is. Um, and I was actually the judge for the barn, a judge for the Barnes and Noble Discover Awards a few years ago. And that was so interesting because Barnes and Noble chooses the titles and then the judges chose the award winners. And I read things that I never would have picked up. Um, and it was such an eye opener for me because I think I'm a wide reader, but this forced me to read even more widely. <laughs> well, tell me, how did your life change after that first book um, came out and, and kind of hit? What 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 changed in your life at that point in time? Well, you know, I bought a house on the French Riviera. Of course. And... <laughs> yes. It's next to mine. How could we forget that? Exactly. Um uh, it didn't, uh, it didn't, I mean, it didn't change, right? You know, I mean, what I, what I spent, I spent more time writing. Um, I switched to freelancing instead of working a regular job, but, you know, this is why I said the thing about like, you got to do it because you love it. Because I think for a long time, I really thought that all my problems would be solved when I had an agent and then when I had a publisher and then, you know, when I had a New York times bestseller and that wasn't the case, it was just like a new set of problems that I had to deal with. I think that I really, I really struggled after that first book because I felt the weight of everybody's expectations on me. Um, you know, and I know that sounds like I'm, you know, crying on the deck of my yacht, like, oh, it's so hard to follow up, you know, your New York Times bestselling book, but it is, right? It's its, its own set of, of problems. Um, but, um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't think that my life changed per se my mm -hmm. perspective on some things changed but um yeah i'm still waiting on that still waiting on that that villa in the south of france maybe i can borrow yours <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know it's an airbnb so we'll, uh, we'll see. <laughs> anybody uh, can borrow it <laughs> that's right the price if the price is right um but i mean even going from like working you know a full-time job to, to being able to freelance there's there's right. a little bit of freedom in that right so you could you you can spend some more time on on writing or or no i mean yeah but also again it comes with its own pressures right like i mean if it you know if freelancing is is its own set of pressure um and i think that uh i don't know we've hit this stage with with um publishing where i feel like in order to be in order to be successful, you have to be one of two kinds of writers. You have to be incredibly prolific, right? Like at least a book a year, if not two, sometimes in different genres. Um, like I know a lot of people who write both adult and YA. Um, or you have to be somebody who reliably produces a blockbuster. And uh, both of those are very difficult things to do for, for very different reasons. So yeah, like, I mean, there there is some freedom uh, to it. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it also came with its own, with its own set of difficulties. Am I like destroying everybody's hopes and dreams? No, right no, no, I think it's, it's a healthy dose, dose of realism. That's, that's, yeah, sure. yeah. I mean, it, it definitely, um, 
it like it's such a nice feeling to be recognized. I don't want to just kind of harp on that pressure because that pressure is there. But at the same time, like when you write something that connects with other people, like that's why we do what we do, right? You know, we have the, what we do for ourselves in creating art. And then we also have what we share with other people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to have people, you know, write to you or, you know, I talk to a lot of book clubs. Um, and say like, I really related to this or I see myself in this, I guess. That's why I was saying my perspective changed because I think I think when I wrote The Weird Sisters, I thought I was alone. I thought I was the only person who had these questions and these problems. And then I heard from all these other people who were like, no, no, I feel exactly the same way. And and that was, that was a really a good feeling and it made me feel less lonely. Yeah. What's your uh, connection to Paris? I know you have... Uh... You know, an anthology, you have Paris All Your Own, you have, um, you know, a work of fiction, The Light of Paris. Do you, do you have yep. a special connection with Paris? Um, so I actually kind of stumbled into this connection with Paris. Like I had never been, oh no, sorry, that's not true. Um, when I was in high school, I went on a trip and we had a layover in Paris. So I was there for like 15 hours, totally punch drunk from sleep deprivation. I think like we saw the Mona Lisa and I ate a baguette, like that, that was it. Um, and you know, while I was struggling to write the follow-up to the Weird Sisters, I was talking, visiting my parents, talking to them one day. And uh, I don't know why we were talking about jazz age Paris, but we were, you know, like you do. And uh, my, my, my parents said to me, you know, your grandmother lived in Paris in the 1920s. And I was like, wait, hold, hold up, <laughs> like time out one second. Um, my grandmother in the Paris, like Hemingway Paris, like that 1920s Paris. And they said, yeah. And we have her letters that she wrote home while so she cool. was there. Yeah. And so like, I can see the writer and you totally see. Oh, it's so story, cool. Yeah. Right. So um, I took home her box of letters. I read it and I was like, I have to write this book. Um, Cause she just had this completely crazy, wonderful experience. I think she was there like 1923 to 1924, which if, if you're going to go to Paris and you can arrange to go in 1923 or 1924, that would be the time to go. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so like I took it, I took a trip to Paris. I kind of followed in her footsteps as much as I could. And I wrote a novel and it was so interesting to me because I had a very like tortured experience being in Paris. Like it was not the wonderful experience that I had thought of. And, and yet I would look around and there were just everywhere, like, you know, books about, books about Paris. I can't remember, was it you who interviewed Juliet Blackwell? Yes. Yeah. A little while ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was listening to that inter that interview and thinking and thinking about this. It's like, why are we so fascinated with Paris? So I had all these friends who happened to have written books about Paris as well, and I was like, let's figure this puzzle out together. So as so the year after I had I published The Light of Paris, we put together this anthology um, to kind of try to answer that question, right? Like, what is it about about Paris? That's um, so cool. Yeah, yeah, it was it was quite an interesting experience. I will say, like editing an anthology is a lot like herding cats. I don't like writers are chaotic, <laughs> and I don't I don't know if I would edit another anthology, but it was really fun to hear everybody's experiences. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't traveled extensively in my life. I got married young. You said you know doing things in your twenties. I was married by twenty four. I had three kids by twenty seven because we had them all at the same time. So my um my ability to travel and, and for leisure travel was really limited, but yeah. I remember I took a business trip to Paris where um, we were there for three days um, and I was exhibiting or presenting at a conference or something. And my, uh, the guy, the owner of the company who I was working for, um, yeah, he's a very adventurous soul and I am not like I, you know, I was fine just hanging out in my hotel room, maybe taking a walk around the block. You really need to push me to do stuff. Yeah. Um, that my younger self, my, my, you know, that was me at 20 something, but right, right. My, myself today, I'm much more adventurous, but he's like, you know, Mike, we're going to do Paris by motor scooter. I'm going to go rent some scooters. And I'm like, the people, have you seen the way people drive here, Nick? I'm it's like, they, they're nuts. And by the way, there's rain in the forecast. Like, what are we doing? He's like, no, it'll be fine. Have some fun, live a little. So we rent these, you know, Vespa motor scooters and we like scoot around Paris. And I was, I was scared out of my mind, but it was probably some of the most fun I've ever had. Um, yeah. Just doing Paris, like without a map um, on yeah. motor scooter. And it was, it was a blast. It was a blast. And then it did start raining and we got soaking wet. 
Um, and we, we, we lived to tell the tale. Um, and, and it was, it was great, but there's something about that city that, you know, had I not been married at the time, um, you know, you, you, I fell in love like 14 times. (laughs) just people. It's just, uh, it's just amazing. It's that's it's a city of lights, right? But it's it's there's some there's some amour in the air, as the French might say. Yeah, yeah. And there's glamour, like everybody's glamorous, you know, everybody's just like perfectly dressed, you know, and and you know, they would never go out in athleisure the way that the way that we always do. And <laughs> that's right. um, yeah, it really is a very, it really is a very special place. And that's why it was so interesting editing that anthology. It was kind of getting everybody's perspectives on it. You know, and and I like I'd kind of like to hear people write do an anthology about other cities, you know, because other cities are magical in their own way. But yeah, and that is the way to discover Paris is just to kind of stumble upon it. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's lovely in that way. Yeah. Well, what can you tell us about um, any other family? So any other family uh, is the story of three sets of adoptive parents who become a special kind of family when they adopt biological siblings. Um, and they want to raise these kids as siblings, even though they're living in separate houses. And they go one summer on their first annual or maybe last annual, depending on who you ask, uh, family vacation to a house in the mountains. And while they're there, they get a call from their children's birth mother telling them that she's pregnant again and she wants them to help her find a family for this child. So, you know, they say there are only two stories. Someone goes on a journey or someone comes to town, right? <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of the Ship of Fools story where you shove everybody together and then kind of watch things explode. And that's what happens. This family is trying to figure out who they are over the course of, of this time together. So these three different couples um, uh, adopted siblings, basically. How old? Yep. I mean, how old were the siblings? So um, the uh, the two older sibling or the two older sets of siblings. Um, there's Phoebe, who was six when she was adopted, and um, there's a set of twins, Tate and Taylor, and they were. Um, I can't remember where I landed. This is one of the funny things when you're editing. Sometimes, like you shift things around so much, you can't remember where they are. I think they were they were toddlers mm-hmm. um, when they were adopted. And then there's a new member of the family, um, which is uh, the child, one of the children's siblings, Violet, and she, when the story takes place, I think is just under a year old. Okay, interesting. So she's kind of not, I don't want to say the wrinkle, but she's the, uh, you know, uh, change things, change things. I was going to say As some kind of inciting have a way of doing as you well know. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So very cool. And what what made you interested in this story? Like, why, why did you want to tell this story? So in the same way that that the light of Paris kind of happens to me. This is another, this is another magical story. Um, my husband and I had not had kids and we hit a point, we were so old that we thought, you know, that that door was closed. Um, so we just kind of moved on and uh, we got a call from my OBGYN at like nine o'clock at night, we were watching the Olympics. And I don't know about you, but like my doctors don't usually call me at nine o'clock at night just to say, <laughs> no. hey. And if they do, it's usually not great news, but it's not great news. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll withhold judgment to tell me what you're about to tell me. So, um, so she called and uh, she says, listen, I had a woman come in yesterday for her annual exam. Uh, and it turns out she's six, she's six months pregnant and she wants to make a plan for adoption. And you were the first people I thought of. Do you want a baby? Wow. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I don't generally get calls from people offering me other human beings. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, my husband and I talked about it and then we met our son's birth mother and uh, his birth father. And uh, three months later, there we all were together in the delivery room as our son was born. Wow. Wow. That's so, an amazing story. It is. It was a little, a little crazy, a little like getting struck by lightning again. But you know, I mean, I had again. I like my... Wait, does that mean you were struck by lightning before? <laughs> no, I feel like the light of Paris was the, okay. the being struck by struck by lightning. All right. Um, you know, I I think that I always come to my my books, at least 
the good ones that I let you read. Um, I always come to them with a set of questions that I don't quite know the answer to. And so going through this experience, you know, of, of course, like I thought about adoption, I think most, most people have, but actually going through the experience is, is very different. And it gave me all these questions about how do we make a family and how are adoptive families and biological families um, and families, you know, connected by marriage different, right? Like how, and what are the unique stressors that come to adoption? How does it affect parenthood? Um, how is it exactly the same as biological parenthood? All of these things. So um, that was kind of what started me down the path of, of writing the book was that I just had all these questions and I was like, I don't know the answer to these questions. Let me create some people and they can try to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, so that's um, that's where I that's where the the story came from. Yeah, and that's 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 a great backstory to your to your current story. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of authors do that, right? I mean, we, we think about something in our life or there's some kind of, you know, there's some kind of lightning bolt that hits, you know, and we, we do lean on our personal experiences, even writing fiction. Um, I always like to think that there's a lot of me in the stories I write, Mm -hmm. um, or in in the authors I talk to, you know, they, they lean on themselves. I just, I just talked to, um, a woman named Lauren McBrayer, who has a, a great new book out. Um, and she realized that she was, you know, didn't realize until afterwards after she was done, but she was writing her story. Like the story yeah. of her characters was her story. Yeah. Um, and it led to a huge life change for her, but that's really her story to tell. But, but the point is there's, I think there's a lot of truth and a lot of realism in, in fiction. I agree. And it, it, you know, I don't think it's always the manifest the way that people think it does, yeah. right? I mean, I think that sometimes people assume, I know this happened a lot with my first book, they were like, hey, this is a book about three sisters, you're one of three sisters, so this is your family, right? And I was like, no, not really. Um, when people ask me how much of my my stories are true, I say more than I intended and less than you think. Yeah. Um, I feel like, you know, my characters, there's never one character who's wholly me, but there's always a little piece of me in every yeah. character. And you know the, the the situations may be totally invented, but then there are thoughts that I've had or feelings that I've had that come out in one way or another. So so I do think it's always there, and I think that's true again, no matter what genre you write. Jody Pico tells this great story about having a fight with her husband and marching upstairs to her office and like typing it down verbatim you know so this is this is why you don't fight with authors because you're gonna end up in their their novels but yeah absolutely I think there's and I think that's why that's why fiction works is because there is there is truth in it whether it is literal truth or just some kind of emotional truth yeah um I, I know you work with you know other authors and you kind of coach other authors and I'm curious and I know that there's a lot of aspiring authors who listen to this show um what's the importance of attending workshops and writing conferences if if you want to get published eventually um I mean I think it depends on the person right I think that um workshops for me were really helpful for a while because they forced me to grapple with specific issues. They forced me to think about specific issues in my writing. Um, I never got a lot out of literal workshops where we were critiquing each other's work, but I get a ton out of writing classes. So this is where I feel like it kind of depends on who you are as a writer. Steve Almond, who's one of my favorite writing instructors, um, he really believes in the workshop model. And he says he learns the most when he was sort of writing critiques of other people's work, like he really figured stuff out there. I do better when I'm analyzing my own work. So it kind of depends on who you are. Um, I do think there is something, there's this weird part, especially to writing where it's like, you spend half your time like locked in a room by yourself with your with nothing but your thoughts. And then there's the author part of the job where you have to go out into the world and be a social human being and talk to people, you know, and shower and all those things. Um, and uh, 
and those are two very different skill sets. And so I think one of the advantages of going to conferences and things like that is getting to be part of that conversation, right? But I think you have to go into it with the right attitude, whether it's a class or a workshop or a conference, you have to go there to learn, not to show people how good you are, right? The, yeah. pl the place to show people how good you are is on the page in the work that you're doing. Um, and I, and I, I do know I've worked, there's always at least one student in the classes I teach who's there just so everybody else will tell them how great they are. And, um, you know, I usually have bad news for them. They're not as great as they think they are. <laughs> and maybe if they spend a little more time putting that, putting the words on the page, you know, they, they would be to that point. But yeah, to be there with your ears open and just willing to learn about, about the craft and the profession, I absolutely think is valuable. Yeah, that's a uh, great, uh, great advice. Well, uh, moving on uh, to un continue to uncork your story. Um, I find that uh, understanding um, pop culture references um, is a great way of uh, learning about the people who I interview. So I'm curious um, to start off with, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were growing up? Uh, so this is actually a tricky question because I was only allowed to watch 30 minutes of television a week. Um, and, uh, so I didn't watch a lot of television. Like, I think I, I think I liked the Dukes of Hazzard maybe. And like, if I look at it now, I'm like, oh my God, that show, yeah. just that show might not hold up these days, but yeah, not so, not so much. I don't even know if it held up back then. Um, uh, so yeah, like I wasn't a big, I wasn't a big TV watcher. What was that all about? 30 minutes limiting, uh, TV time to 30 minutes. Oh, what, my parents, my parents like we're big readers. Um, and it's funny, you know, one of the things that I, that, that I write about in any other family is the way that we kind of like manifest our own baggage onto our kids, no matter how much we try not to. And TV is such like a fraught subject with my son. You know, I was like, oh, I'm going to be the mom that, you know, he doesn't watch any, any screens until he's two. And, and then even then he can watch 30 minutes a week. Cause that's what I had. And then um, COVID happened. <laughs> and uh I was like yeah you can just go ahead and watch train videos on on YouTube because <laughs> because I don't have mama doesn't have any more gas in the tank um uh so yeah so my parents just just really just really really wanted us to spend our time doing other things and I and I respect that and appreciate that I think it's one of the reasons that I'm a writer today yeah, very cool. Very cool. How about musical artists? Were you allowed to listen to music when you were growing up? I was allowed to listen to music. I was raised on Broadway musicals. Um, I'm a Broadway musical traditionalist, like none of this contemporary monkey business, like Oklahoma, South Pacific, Rodgers and Hammerstein or GTFO. Um, but I Some also, Enchanted like, Evening, right? I, that was that was South Pacific. Some Enchanted yeah. Evening. I, I was in a yeah. high school production of it. I remember like those songs. You were. I was. I was. I was not Did a you, singer. What, what, you're I not a not, singer. I was. I was. I was in the uh, well, the ensemble, if you will. And I also did like the lighting and sound. Um, but so what uh, did you say? Like, did you get to sing like Bloody Mary is the girl I love? You didn't get to sing. I, that? I may have been able to belt that out, but maybe they muted the microphone um, because <laughs> I. I think the words tone deaf have been used to describe me. Um, yeah, I can play the guitar. But uh, oh, that's singing, crazy! You're not tone deaf. Well, I'm, I'm not tone. Well, you know, I can't sing is basically what it boils down to. But I definitely hear tones. Um, but uh, man, I remember uh, South Pacific. I love that. And actually, borrowed what my second novel. Um, I borrowed heavily from from South Pacific because I used a. Uh, I, I spent some time in this hotel in California. Um, that my client, my God, my client, we had the money to to stay in a nice place, but he's okay. like, no, we're going to stay in the hotel Airtel across from the Van Nuys airport. I'm like, Bob, if it's a matter of budget, I will, I will spring for the W and Westwood. Anyway, right. um, we stay at this hotel and it's, it's run down. It's dirty. There's no hot water, but it's across from the airport. And it's, it's like a South Pacific themed hotel. Like there are pictures of Pan Am Clippers and that was kind of cool because I'm a big yeah. aviation geek. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a fan of no hot water, but I, I, <laughs> I can rally around the airplanes. So I, I always remembered this hotel and I had this vision that there were just like at night after the bar closed, like the ghosts of old World War II airmen were coming <laughs> to like have drinks and smoke cigarettes in this bar. 
Um, but it, it left a mark on me and I used it. Uh, I used sort of a, um, a version of that in, uh, in a book I wrote, but. Um, well, and there you go. There's the, there's the life coming into art, right? I mean, you have an experience like that and, and it's a great story and you have to share it. You got to right? put it in there. But, and I use bloody mare, like every, every you know, person who worked at this hotel had a South Pacific name. So I had bloody Mary who was at the, uh, you know, at the bar, uh, not the bar at the, she was, she was the, um, behind the, the, you know, the, the, not the host, what do you call these? The, the, like the, the registration desk. desk. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That was bloody Mary. And then the bartender was, can't remember his name. This book was written a while ago. Um, but it was something right out of South Pacific. And I just had a little fun with that, but I had awesome. fond memories of that musical, but like that 42nd street, were you a 42nd street person? I was a 42nd street person. I did. I took, I took tap dancing. I'm kind of terrible at tap dancing, but I love it because you get to make a lot of noise, right? Oh, noise is good. That was the first Broadway show I ever saw was 42nd street. Oh, really? Yep. Yep. So 42nd street. I can name all of them. 42nd street, me and my girl. Oh, me and my girl. Such a great show. That I was a good one. Tim that was Curry really that. funny. That was really funny. I enjoyed that too. Yeah. I enjoyed that. That's my parents took us to Broadway a lot. Um, as kids, once we moved up to, up north, we were we didn't have that much in Florida, but uh, you know, <laughs> I know I live I lived in South Florida for many years. <laughs> what part of South Florida? Um, I started off in North Miami and kind of like worked my way north towards Boca. Okay, yeah, I was in Plantation. Oh yeah, I know from Plantation. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I used to tell people they're like, "Where are you from?" I'm like, "Plantation." They're like, "You had a farm." I'm like no, no, it's the name of the town. I feel like plantation is another name that is like not aged well, and maybe no, we, should... I, we we were coming back from our honeymoon, and I'm going through customs in probably Puerto Rico, I think, because we had a stop over there. So I think we went through customs in Puerto Rico, and the guy's like, "Where are you from?" My passport says Plantation, Florida, and he looks at me, says, "You're a cracker." He hands me my passport, and 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 he was he was trying to make a joke, right. but I'm like. It's just the town. I didn't grow up on a plantation. <laughs> I'm not responsible for it. I'm like, it wasn't me, man. It wasn't me. Oh like my, my, my grandparents were in Italy at the time. Uh, <laughs> not my fault. But I digress. Oh. I digress. Um, so you, you Broadway, any other types of uh, music you, uh, you find yourself listening to growing up? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was a big, so my sisters are much older than I am. So I was kind of listening to whatever they listened to, like Blondie. I think my first, um, my first 45 was Putting on the Ritz by Taco. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's or great. maybe Major Tom by Peter Schilling. Oh, Peter Schilling, man. Yeah. That's another guy I ripped, I ripped off, but I uh, used his name as a, a, a captain um uh, as on a private airline peter schilling captain peter schilling and the 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 plane's name is major tom like i <laughs> so I feel blatantly like self-indulgent jokes like i try to make a lot of i tried to, to put as many one direction um references as possible into my books um like do these little things that you do to entertain yourself when you're writing like they're a joke that you have with yourself oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, there was one joke in my in my first book. I think it was like a 420 joke. <laughs> and my editor didn't get it. And every time she she did an edit, she was like, Why I don't get this? Why is this in here? And I was like, I'm not taking it out. I think no it's way. funny. I'm not taking it out. Um, so yeah, you just you just kind of um kind of go go with go with you gotta make yourself happy somehow, those rooms, those hours when you're sitting in a locked room. Oh so speaking of people who didn't understand 420, I'm I was having a session um with my therapist and we were zooming and it was on April 20th. And she, you know, she's got teenagers at home. And she's like, I think I smell marijuana coming from the basement. And I'm uh, like, well, it's 420. And she's right. like, what does that mean? I'm like, it's like national weed day, like, you know, 420. It's like people smoke weed. She's like, well, my kids would never do that. I'm like, I think you should go to your basement right now and tell me, <laughs> and then report back to me. I investigate. And God bless the kids who can't figure out that that skunky smell is so recognizable. I live in Colorado now. So it is like a permanent, a permanent wreath here. Well, they think they can get away with it by vaping and, but right. even like the vaping cartridges right. do have a little bit of a smell to them. You know, yeah. it's like, it's not, you can't be totally stealth with those. I know. Oh. I say ed edibles, people, edibles. Get That's right. 
That's right. Stick with those. But then they take like you know, 90 minutes to kick in. To and kick in. Oh, Well, it just means you got to plan ahead, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, then, you know, because if you're an experience like, you know, that didn't work, I should probably take another. And then all of a sudden you're like Leo DiCaprio and Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> you know, like, Woo! <laughs> but I digress. Um, uh, if you weren't uh, an author, uh, other careers that you'd be interested in pursuing, what are what are some of those? Um, oh my gosh, I feel like I've had them already. And I feel like that's actually the best preparation for becoming an author. So my first job out of college, I um, what did wedding sales and was a wedding coordinator. And that comes with a set of great stories. Um, Bridezilla's I, galore, I'm sure. Big pardon? Bridezilla's galore. Yeah, there were a handful of those, but mostly it's like just families who are bananas and cannot hold it together for like the four hours, <laughs> you know, can you just be nice to each other and not get in a fist fight for four hours for these people? No. Um, I, uh, yeah, yeah. So the, there's a, there's a level of bananas that comes along with, with weddings for everybody. Um, I worked in finance, probably like my favorite job was I taught seventh grade for um, almost 10 years. And I love that. Um, if I didn't have to deal with like the grading, if I could just like hang out with seventh graders, I would totally do that because I think they're they are a riot. Yeah. Um, but I also like have all these fantasies because, you know, as you know, as a writer, like it's constantly in your head, like you never turn it off. Um, and uh, excuse me, um, I feel like I feel like a lot of my fantasies are about jobs that just end at the end of the day. So there was a door factory near where we lived in in uh, in Boca. And um, I would go by it on the tri-rail, like the light rail. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, I want to work at the door factory. Like I want to go make a door and then go home at the end of the day and be like, I made a door today. And like had that satisfaction or like doing nails, like something where there's a finite end to it. Yeah. You know, because even... With writing, I'm about to go through this process that I'm dreading where um, I have to go through any other family and find uh, some sec sections to read at book events. Like, because whenever you go back to your work, even after it's published, you're like, oh, I should have done this or, oh, I would do this differently. And that's always really hard. So it would be really nice just to go to work and make a door and then not stress about it for the next five years about like, what's the New York Times going to say about my door? <laughs> like, I should have done, I should have done the door handle differently. Just like I made a good door. Let's all move on with our lives. Well, it's, it's also like once you make the door and leave, you can't make another door at home. Like you can't, you know, you just can't do it. Right. So like, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I don't have to turn off if I don't want to, because my clients can get me, smartphones are there. There's always something I can be doing in my professional life. But if I worked at a factory, it's not like I have door making, you know, door making factory in my backyard. Right, <laughs> you and you know? wouldn't want to, because you'd be like, no. I just made doors all day. Well, I don't want to make them at home. I want to do something different. Right. Writers are the only, only people crazy enough to want to keep making doors in their backyard. After right. they make doors all day. Right. And I, but I do think the New York Times should have a door review. I think that they should. <laughs> doors are really important items. I mean, I'm joking about this, but like, where would you be without doors? You know? That's right. That, that, absolutely. Um, you know, and a door is also a great band. Um, but uh, moving on, um, how do you feel when you're staring at a blank sheet of paper? You know, you got to write something. What, what emotions do you experience? Uh, it kind of depends on whether I'm prepared to be staring at a blank sheet of paper or not. I read, this was a blog post and then she turned it into an ebook called 2K to 10K. Have you heard about this? Mm. Encountered it. I mean, essentially like the premise is how to go from writing 2000 words a day to writing 10,000 words a day. I got to tell you, I think that writing 10,000 words a day is a terrible idea for all kinds of reasons. It but sounds insane. I know it, 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 it like, I don't know. I don't know if you're really writing at that point as much as you are typing, but the principles that she, that she talks about in, in the blog post and the ebook are really helpful. And, you know, one of them is like just having a very clear vision of what you're going to write when you sit down. Um, and so that's something that I always try to do is to know what scene I'm walking into. One, um, 
uh, one of my friends, Deborah Harkness, uh, she wrote the Discovery of Witches series. She talks about how she stops writing in the middle of a sentence. And I tried that a couple of times and I would come back to it and be like, what the heck was I trying to say? So I can't do that. But if I have sort of like a movie in my head of what the scene is gonna be, then I can just walk in and sit down and, and write it. And I don't find a blank page scary at all. If I'm not prepared, then of course it's, it's terrifying. Yeah. Very, uh, very cool. So come prepared people come prepared okay. to your, to your writing session. Um, what lesson about publishing do you feel like you learned the hard way or that you had to learn the hard way? Um, I think, I don't know. Um, not to read reviews probably. <laughs> Um, I stopped reading them very, very early. You know, my, I think my, my marketing team had been like, you should set up a Google alert with your name. And I was, and I just have to tell you, I think that's a terrible idea. And I know there are a lot of writers who like to read their Amazon reviews or their Goodreads reviews. I don't even read, you know, Publishers Weekly. I don't read anything. Um, and that's because the reviews aren't for me, right? Like I have people that I can go to who will give me honest feedback on my work. And I really appreciate that. Um, but reviews are for other readers. And I think that one of the reasons that people can, that writers continue to read them after their work is out in the world is that like once it's out in the world, it's not yours anymore. Like you cannot control it. You cannot control what people bring to it or what they're gonna take away from it. And I feel like reading reviews is, is a way of trying to keep control. So if you're looking for feedback on your work, then I recommend going to a writing workshop or, you know, getting some, some good friends who are thoughtful readers and, and writers who will help you with it. But I, I just remember reading it. I actually thought this was really funny, but I think it was, there were two like blog reviews that just made me stop reading. And I, one of them, I think was like, this book is called The Weird Sisters, but it should have been called The Boring Sisters. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, like if you're gonna, if you're gonna burn me, then burn me. Like that's not even a good burn. <laughs> I just say, I still think of that. I still think it's hilarious. Like The Boring Sisters. Um, but again, like it wasn't for me. It was for readers. Yeah. You know? Yeah, not for your ego. Not for my ego. And not, and not for my writing. Right. You know? That's right. Like, yeah. It, it, that's it. They're not there to help me, to help me be a better, a better writer. I have tools for that. Yeah. I always like wonder like who these people are that like make it their mission to write negative reviews. Um, and you know, look, it, it, I know people do it, but it's like, why, like what, what, what psychological or emotional benefit does it give them to tear someone else apart? Um, yeah. I've always wondered that. I've always wondered that. And then I go on Twitter and then I realized that there's a lot of those people out there. It's just a lot of free floating anger. Well, now we're to the point where, where it gets eyeballs, right? And so if you want attention, um, then that's something you can do. I did hear a movie reviewer interviewed years ago and they said like, next time you go to a movie and you're kind of eh about it, go and try to write a review of it. And the more you write, the more negative it will, it will become, even if you were just kind of eh about, yeah. about it while you were seeing it. And I think that was such an interesting point. It's like Yelp reviews, right? Like people there are either delighted or furious. Or they're pissed off, yeah. Right, like nobody goes to be like, yeah, it was okay. It was all right, the service was all right, the food was all right. It was, it was three stars, right? People either go because they're go because they're passionate about something. Um, but I do think, you know, I used to write, I used to review for, for Publishers Weekly. Um, I've done some reviews for the Washington Post and a handful of other outlets. And that became really hard after I had been reviewed. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. it's like, it just changes your relationship, your relationship with it. Yeah. Well, last up, we talked about um, kind of going back to 1920s Paris. If we had yeah. a time machine, you know, we, we'd, we'd go back to the, the jazz age and the, of Paris. We'd go maybe hanging out with your grandmother a little bit. Um, but uh, if you could go back in time and whisper some words of advice to your younger self, what would you tell, you know, the, the younger Eleanor? Oh, my gosh. 
I don't know, because like, I feel like that this question, usually people are like, oh, do less dumb stuff. But like the dumb stuff is what makes you who you are, right? Yeah, you gotta, you gotta keep the dumb stuff in there. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta keep the dumb stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, so maybe, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like there are two answers to this question. Do, le do less dumb stuff or buy Apple stock. I guess I'm gonna go. I guess I'm gonna go with buy buy Apple stock. Or maybe like maybe use those thirty minutes to watch Love Boat and not the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> oh, I did watch Love Boat. I remember watching that. There was one story about um like a stowaway on the Love Boat. Oh sure, yeah, uh, yeah. absolutely. I was like, oh, I think I should I should be on the Love Boat. Yeah, I should be a stowaway on the Love Boat. I I I said this before. I love the Love Boat. Um. You know, I, I started watching it during the pandemic, rewatching oh, really? it. Really? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I I there's something about that show. It's so stupid, like it's so and it's so cookie cutter. Yeah. But you know, they had three different writers for each of the different couples they'd profile on the Love Boat, so you got to see like oh. three different. There are three different stories. They all kind of come together because right, they're all right. on the same yeah. ship. But yeah. you got to hear like these different voices. And and I, I didn't know it as a kid when I was first watching it, but sure. you know, I watch it now and I'm like, that's actually really interesting. And you could actually tell like there's a different pacing, the dialogue is different. Um, you know, it's it's uh you know, just it, it's interesting storytelling and it's you know, you know, it's always like a couple who's madly in love, but they have a fight and they have to make up. And then there's the, the single person who's looking for love, finds it on the love boat. And then, you know, there's a third story, but there's all the same storylines, but. Right, right. But there's something, I mean, especially there's something comforting about that, like, right in the COVID times, I think there was a lot of us who were re-watching things or re-reading oh, yeah. things um, because it was just, it was super comforting. I think I was reading a lot of John Grisham and it was just like, let's just do something easy. People are always slurping their coffee in John Grisham. And it's like, it's fine. But that, but you know, your comment about the writing on the love boat goes back to my point earlier about you can read anything at any level, right? You know, you, and so there you are like taking writing lessons from the love boat, which nobody would say is, uh, is deep, deep work, but there's lessons to be taken from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we've been talking um, to Eleanor Brown. And uh, her latest book is Any Other Family. It's available wherever books are sold. Eleanor, any uh, website, social media you want to throw out there if people want to get in touch with you? Yeah, they can uh, take a look at my website, which is eleanor-brown.com, E-L-E-A-N-O-R-brown.com. And they can see what I'm up to. I've got some events coming up and I will um, keep them posted there. Very cool. Uh, Eleanor, thank you so much for uh, stopping by and letting me uncork your story. This has been a fun conversation and all the best with the new book. Thank you so much, Mike. Take care. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.